Hello and welcome to Political Compass Podcast, number three, week three. Uh, today, we have uh, us three, as always, as normal, no special guests. Uh, how's everyone? Uh, not too bad. Uh, I'm doing all right. I'll, I'll be here this week. Yeah. Dying, <laughs> kind of. Yes, as always, Ran, and, you are dying. Um, yes. Now, this, we're going to introduce something called the news. And in the news, we are going to, well, mention... Honorable mentions topics that well didn't make the cut. So you know, before we, we always look for topics and stuff, and well, I guess research and stuff. And those that didn't make the cut, we'll have like a small segment segment in the news. Yeah, just uh, about small topics that aren't too important, and that we just want to mention. Yeah. Uh, so today, uh, Luke will start off just like he did week two, week one. Sorry. So, what's your topic for today? I'm going to be talking about the uh, in Canada the Conservative Party leadership election, and then ah, right. and you then were supposed more, to talk then, about it yeah, last, last week, week but and then I had, to, I had to leave. Yeah. So, and I'm going to be talking about the ramifications of that, how that might, uh, how coronavirus is playing into it, how that might affect Canadian politics. It's it's very much in flux. So whatever I say now could change next week. We sort of over and over every time anyone makes a prediction about this this race, the two days later something happens and completely disregards it. So take everything with a grain of salt here. All right. Yeah. So it's um, predictions. So yeah. To get into it. So uh, I'll start back in 2015. So as pretty much everyone knows. In 2015, Justin Trudeau came in and he won a majority government meeting. He won more than half the seats. He unseated the former Conservative Prime Minister, Stephen Harper. So what happened in 2017 was the Conservative Party, after Harper resigned, they held a leadership election, which was one of the one of the things they did was they wanted to encourage all sorts of ideas in this leadership election. So they made an extremely low uh, cost of entry. And the amount of signatures you needed from party members was pretty low to get in. So what happened was, in that leadership election, there were 13 candidates. And in the first like the first rounds of balloting, almost none of them got any votes because it was just all so split up and all the debates were very, very split up. So what ended up happening was the party, uh, Andrew Scheer, who was in the first round of balloting, I think he was in second, but very, very distant second to Maxime Bernier, who was the favorite to win. Um, Maxime Bernier was a libertarian uh, kind of candidate and a bit of a nationalist, but not nationalist populist, but not the same at that in 2017. So what happened was, as because the Conservative Party of Canada uses um, what's called ranked balloting, right? So you eliminate the last place candidate, you move their votes to the next preference. So what happened was, the part, because Andrew Scheer was the most centrist candidate for the party, which was he was part of the Christian group, that kind of thing, it sort of coalesced around him, and he was pretty much taken as the nobody hates him candidate. And obviously, moved forward two years, and he ran what can only be described as a pretty botched campaign last year, which was because he's a very strong Christian. So the liberals, of course, targeted him on issues like abortion, on gay rights, and they said, well, what are you going to do here? And he never really gave a straight answer on what he was going to do. And it really damaged his credibility because he wasn't saying he was going to do the Christian thing, which angered his own Christian base, and he wasn't saying he wasn't going to do it, which angered everyone else. So he basically angered everyone. He basically angered everyone. And 
I mean, the quote here was one of the conservative, a conservative, prominent conservative, Peter McKay, the quote was, he missed a goal on an empty net last year in the election because Trudeau had scandal after scandal after scandal after scandal, and somehow Sheer still fucked up and lost. So... <laughs> he shot himself in the foot. It, it really do be like that sometimes, you know? <laughs> so, and then what happened was... After the election, it was a minority government where the liberals were reduced uh, to 13 seats below a majority, mostly not because of the conservatives. The conservatives took very few seats away from the liberals and actually lost a few seats to the liberals in areas like the GTA and in uh, Quebec. But what happened was in Quebec, the liberals were decimated by the Bloc Québécois, which reduced, which caused them to be impossible for them to get a majority. So it really was the Bloc who stopped the liberal majority, not the conservatives. So, uh, and the liberals still they gained thirty seats mostly by doing some, uh, pretty much essentially cleaning house in the in the West by uh, knocking out a bunch of prominent liberal cabinet ministers in the West, and they they reduced the liberals to having zero seats in Saskatchewan and Alberta. So all mm. the liberals were knocked out there. So, and then what happened was, but because it was seen as such a botched campaign, because they didn't make any inroads in Quebec, they didn't make any inroads in uh, the GTA especially, they lost, they had two major uh, shadow cabinet ministers, the deputy leader of the party, and then a liberal who had defected to them. The liberal who defected managed to hold on to her seat barely, and the deputy leader, Lisa Wright, she lost her seat to, to a liberal. Mm. So, their big hopes of making gains turned out to be losing seats in Toronto. Initially, after the election, because he had gained seats, Shear was sort of planking himself as, well, keep me around as leader, I'll keep it up. And then a few weeks later, the pressure started building of, you botched that campaign so thoroughly, you're going to get removed. And, um, and, a, and a scandal came out in early December. He was using the party's money to pay for his kids to go to private school, and he oh, immediately well, and he immediately res- yeah, he, imme- not, he immediately resigned a, as leader. No-no. He immediately resigned as leader. So the field. Okay, at least he resigned. Yeah. You know, unlike some well, no, people. He, he announced he announced <laughs> his re- he announced his resignation as leader, and then about and then about a half hour later, the National Post published the article about the 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 kids taking the money because <laughs> he knew they were about to do it. So, and then sort of, sort of what happened was, obviously the field became open and it was, okay, who are the candidates going to be? And this is pre-COVID before any of this happened. So what happened was, as you get into December, you started having major conservatives start expressing interest in joining. You had people like uh, Rona, Ambrose, Rona Ambrose was a favorite to get in, although she never really said she was going to. You had um, Pierre Polyevre, who's a conservative from Ottawa. Uh, you had people like uh, Jean Charest, the former premier of Quebec who and a former conservative who is had, who had rejoined the party. And you had a lot of these kind of big names coming in. And then, of course, you had Peter McKay, who was the former uh, defense minister and, and mm-hmm. uh, minister of justice. And then you had and then you had one candidate from the last leadership election who came third. Aaron O'Toole. Oh yeah, uh, I forgot to mention. After losing, Maxime Bernier left the Conservatives, formed his own party, and got eviscerated in the polls and lost his own seat. So, <laughs> so he's pretty much irrelevant at this point. Um, pog, pog, pog. <laughs> yeah, most commentators have said if he just stayed in the party, he'd be the leading competitor for the leadership right now. Um, so, and then what happened was in in uh, January. 
Stephen Harper started – he started getting involved in the leadership election in a way that he didn't last time. And there was – and there's a lot more pressure on the conservatives to have a much quicker, much more – a bit more aggressive campaign this time to get it done way faster. Because last time it took them two years to get it done, and this time they said we were going to try to get it done in six months. So – and then what happened was you started in one, one – within a two-week period in January – Probably seventy-five percent of candidates who had said they were interested dropped out. So Sheree was out, Ambrose was Ooh. out, Polyevra was out. So the only well-known candidate left was the former defense minister Peter McKay, and you had the guy who came mm-hmm. third last time, Aaron O'Toole, who last time he campaigned as I'm a progressive conservative candidate, and this time he suddenly switched to saying because Peter McKay is the probably. Uh, sort of on the left of the Conservative Party. So Aaron O'Toole switched his how he's going to campaign, and now he's campaigning as I'm on the right wing of the party, despite the fact last time he campaigned as being on the left. And then there's one um, candidate, uh, Leslie Lewis, who is like running as the explicitly Christian candidate. Like She's very, very uh, involved with evangelical organizations, all that kind of thing. And then there's one mm-hmm. more candidate, Derek Sloan, who's essentially running as the People's Party light, which is extremely anti-immigration, extremely right-wing. And he said some pretty dodgy things about uh, minorities. So. Well, well, yeah, saying dodgy things and being right-wing yeah. is goes hand-in-hand. Hand. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and then, of course, coronavirus hit and the election's being delayed. And they cranked up the amount of money you needed to get in. And at this point, compared to the 13 candidates last time, this time there's only those four. And a lot of people have been saying mm. that this is a really, really disappointing field because the only name is the, that former defense minister and all the prominent conservatives backed out. Mm-hmm. So so he's probably going to win, right? Um, currently, it looks like he's way ahead in the polls, but because it's ranked voting, there is a fear that maybe the right-wing candidate and Leslin Lewis, the Christian candidate, their voters might preference Aaron O'Toole the more... I don't know how to describe him. He's like... He switches how he is depending on the mood, but like they might just preference him to stop McKay winning. So there is... Mm. But right now, McKay is way out in front for taking it. Yeah. Mm. It's... Yeah, and overall in Canadian politics right now, obviously as coronavirus has gone on, um, since he resigned as party leader, Andrew Scheer still technically leads the party in Parliament because um, of the four candidates, only two of them, Derek Sloan and Aaron O'Toole, actually have seats in Parliament. Uh, McKay doesn't, and mm-hmm. Lewis doesn't. Um, so what, what's been happening is, as Shears, their main, he, he didn't appoint an interim leader after he resigned. He's just leading the party in parliament still. And a lot of commentators mm-hmm. have said he's sort of forgotten he resigned. Uh, oh. because he's been, like, in parliament acting as if he's going to be fighting Trudeau in the next election by constantly bashing him in parliament over and over. He got in, uh, oh, I can get into this scandal. <sighs> it's, it's, it, it, it's the... Funniest scandal you ever hear about? Uh, the Paw Patrol scandal. Yes. The what scandal? <laughs> the Paw Patrol scandal. It's a children's. <laughs> the repeat scandal. <laughs> oh my god. So what happened was Paw Patrol scandal. Yeah. So so in the CBC, a, a lady by the name of Rebecca Zandebergen posted an article, which said that the the the, <laughs> the title of this article was. 
does Paw Patrol? Uh, do you two both know what Paw Patrol is? Or I explain it. Paw Patrol is a children's TV show about. I know. Yeah, I know. I don't know if Ryan yeah, knows. It's, it's, a, it's yeah, no, it's it's, like that. Okay, I know because my sister has been watching it a lot. And it said in here, it said, "Does Paw Patrol encourage our kids to embrace capitalism?" Which on its own, which on its own should have just been ignored, and then. Andrew Shear came out on Twitter with a video bashing this lady for this article saying that ca- well, why do you attack capitalism? <laughs> That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Which, it's like an article that, that it's an article yes, headline yeah. that sounds like the onion. Yeah. No, it, it Andrew happened. Bit the onion, basically. I don't know if it was actual or satirical, the article. I hope but... it was real. That'd be yes. quite funny. There is I... a video. Oh my god. Boy. Here we go. Is... I will add it to the bottom. There you go. Yeah, put that put that in the description yeah, of the yeah. video. Andrew Shear <laughs> CBC article claiming Paw Patrol goods is capitalist individualist. <laughs> Yeah, and then that is so wild. Since... Like, who would have thought? Who would have thought of that? Like, how how uncracked do you have to oh be? Oh my to god, think of this that? is like a full-on article as well. Uh huh. Yeah. So, and wow. then since COVID nineteen happened, um, Parliament was suspended in March, and what they've been doing since is initially they were doing a. Uh, each party brings in. I think it was about a tenth of their caucus. So one in ten, they bring in their their people and then they do it and they spread out so there's only 35 people in the house of commons and then now they've switched it so they're doing that as well as they're letting people um zoom into parliament like how they're doing in the uk parliament with people being able to zoom in the parliament so what's happened it's good since you have less than 500 seats in the parliament yep. zoom doesn't allow meetings with more than 500 people <laughs> yeah so we have 338 so yeah. <laughs> so what's been happening is conservatives have called for Parliament to be reopened repeatedly because they they want to be able to um they want to be able to uh, bring in their people really because there's a lot of their MPs who feel really really strongly that they're being pushed out of Parliament and can't participate properly. And then there's this has been a back and forth, but currently how it is is that the NDP is backing up the Liberals in keeping Parliament. Uh, in this sort of smaller state Zoom meetings kind of thing, mm-hmm. so it's it, it's it's a back and forth. But uh, right now, the the liberals are very very much up in the polls because the conservatives have been running into walls repeatedly. Um, I, I think Paw Patrol pretty much speaks for itself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. And um, right now, uh, the really the most commentators have said the only thing that's stopping Trudeau from calling another election is COVID, because he he would be able to call an election right now and easily win a majority. Yeah, maybe he'll wait a bit and get even a better majority. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's very much up in the air what's going to happen, but right now it's. It's looking as if the conservative leadership race is very, very disappointing. A lot, not a lot of people like any of the candidates too much. Um, the conservative leader has been uh, has forgotten he resigned, and the liberals are very, very much up in the polls. That's amazing. So they just keep <laughs> shooting themselves in the foot, and they don't learn it. Essentially. Now we'll put on our suit, apply our makeup, and look into the camera.
because we're doing the news. And I'll begin with the United Kingdom, more specifically Brexit. Um, I think we all know Britain's been doing Brexit and they've been working very, very hard on it. And right now, they're beginning to work out trade deals. Um, they're talking with the Japs and the Yankees about a stronger relationship than what the EU offers currently. However, they're struggling to come to terms with the EU um, because they want a quote-unquote level playing field. So they want the same like benefits as all the other EU members, even if the UK isn't in the EU. And, you know, EU doesn't want to play ball with that, you know, because they think that's unfair, which I personally think it is. And, well, they're sort of stuck here. But uh, they have been talking with the Japanese, and that's been going quite successful for them. And I believe, from what I can remember, their talks with the US have also been pretty successful. Anyone, anyone would like to add to this? I know, I know that they've been talking about with Israel as well. I know the foreign ministers of Israel and Britain have met on multiple occasions recently. That's been going on quite well. Any other news? Other news. Uh, so Trump, the Trump administration, has rolled back Obama-era uh, trans uh, protections for transgender people. So basically, those protections prohibited discrimination in healthcare against patients who are transgender. Um, but the Trump administration has reversed that. It's a controversial move, definitely. Uh, and one another thing is that it was done during Pride Month, June. Yeah. So that is even more kind of like it's kind of a fuck you, transgender people. We're gonna use your month and cancel your protections. I mean, it's, <sighs> it's another okay. yeah. It's really it, he's using the Trump yeah he's using the cover of the controversy around all the Black Lives Matter stuff. It, it, it's pretty standard when there's something that's dominating the news cycle, like coronavirus and this whole protest. You can get small. You can do things like this and get away with yeah. it. And that's my assumption is most people will will miss this because. It's happening during these other controversies. Yes, exactly. But it's something very important and that people should realize. Um, I don't know if there are any voters like this in the US, but I there are some people who are normally conservative, but generally okay towards the LGBTQ public. Yeah. Um, but I think Trump just... Uh, sealed the nail in the coffin for these people voting for him. I mean, yeah. it's become for a lot of conservative voters, at least in the U.S. and Canada. No, not so much in the U.S., but there is a group of these kind of conservative voters. To them, they see the LGBT issue as being done. It's done. Like the argument's done. There's there's nothing more we can really do here. It's done. And then, the, and a lot of them don't appreciate when people keep bringing up social issues when there are issues like the u.s economy all that kind of thing and then people bring up like oh well, let's start banning lgbt's and it's like are there not like why is this something that matters why is this something you needed to do there's no reason for this yeah, yeah. they're like it's kind of in the name they're conservative not reactionary yeah Essentially, rolling back isn't really a good move. You're trying to conserve value, which is okay. If I go on a tangent here, go ahead. Uh, 
I've never understood conservatism as an ideology, kind of, because you want to conserve, but when someone makes a change, you don't really try to act on that change. So basically, you're saying, we generally want to keep things as they are. I can vaguely try to ex- I can I can vaguely try to explain it. So the, a lot of conservatives, it's kind of this this feeling of being um, proud of how things are, and a, a lot of conservatives they talk about how conservatism is about respect, where you're respecting your country, you're respecting the his the, the the past of your country, that kind of thing, and they they don't feel that a lot of these social changes are something that needs to be pushed immediately. Now, whether or not I personally disagree with that, but that's sort of been the argument I've heard from conservatives, um, and it's it's sort of this sort of feeling of I respect I respect my country's history, I I respect its institutions, and then making major changes is disrespectful, sort of thing. That's at least the impression I have. I see. It's 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 kind of a valid argument, but at the same time, when when you do social progress, you aren't really changing your country's history or something, which is also a thing that relates to current news because recently uh, statues, historical monuments and stuff have been vandalized. For example, I'm doing that later on. I'm doing that later on. Yes, Ryan's going to talk about that, but I just briefly yeah. mentioned it. So, yeah. Um, that's the news done. So, that's the news. Right, now, Igor, your turn. Let's see what you've got to say. So, I'll be talking about how Cyprus has lifted travel restrictions on um, multiple countries and how some European countries are following Cyprus's model on opening up. Um, Cyprus has opened uh, their borders to Israel, Greece, Germany, Austria, and Malta. They haven't opened to Britain and Russia, which are uh, their two biggest uh, travel markets. Sweden, France, Belgium, and the Netherlands are also big in Cyprus, and they are also not open. So basically, Cyprus opened for uh, countries who are generally close, although Germany is kind of well, the exception. their immediate neighbors, basically. Yes. Um, Israel is very big on, on uh, travel in Cyprus. Greece, obviously. Uh, Bulgaria, I think, too. Uh, and Malta, who is also very close. So they've opened mostly to their immediate neighbors. Have they yes. opened to Turkey yet? Um, Turkey, no, because they don't have good relations yeah, with Turkey. Enough. I don't even think they allow Turkish people to enter. I'm not what sure about, the, about the, that. What about the de facto Turkish um, area? Is there any news from there, or is it just closed? Uh, no. Mm. Northern Cyprus is kind of like Dead. a blank, blank area. It's not, no data. <laughs> um, Greece, open, Greece opened their borders, will open their borders, sorry, to European citizens, uh, European citizens, uh, from June 15th. Mm-hmm. Um, also countries which have already opened their borders are Latvia open to EU citizens from June 3rd. Estonia, uh, open to EU and UK from uh, since uh, June 1st. Um, Sweden, uh, only open to EU, but it hasn't been closed, if I'm correct. Sweden never closed their borders. Um, people who arrive in the UK have to self-isolate for 14 days, but it ha- the borders have been open since June 8th. Um, 
Italy opened borders June 3rd, and uh, Slovenia opened board, uh, will open uh, borders on June 15th. So the thing with Cyprus is that it set up uh, a thing, a uh, system where if a person catches uh, COVID-19 on Cypriot soil, their vacation will be paid for and they will be sent to isolation in a specific hotel. So I, I, I think they are the only country that has publicly announced uh, what they are going to do in case a tourist which has nowhere to self-isolate normally uh, catch catches uh, COVID-19. I think these travel bubble sort of things are going to be the way forward. If you look, it's starting. To, it's definitely starting to happen in Europe, where specific two countries or groups of countries are agreeing to these travel deals of we're all jointly dealing reasonably well with COVID, and we need the economic activity from the tourism, so we're going to start focusing on these sort of regional bubbles. Um, that's been happening. I post an article here. Um, it's There's been a lot of talk about it, because in Canada, all the provinces essentially have closed their borders to each other. It's like screening. Like If you go to any other province, you have to self-isolate for 14 days. So what they've been talking about here is the uh, maritime provinces, the four, well, the three maritime provinces, and maybe Newfoundland and Labrador for the four Atlantic provinces. They've been talking about possibly moving into a system where if you're from another another one of these four provinces, you don't have to self-isolate and we'll, and we'll open those borders. So I think that's going to be the way forward in that it's going to be groups of countries reopening their borders to each other to incentivize tourism, but not it's going to be the slow reopening. It's not going to be an all at once. It'll be regional bubbles and it'll be bigger bubbles and it'll just sort of as, as it sort of tones down, but just to avoid the second wave kind of thing. Yeah. So basically, they're gonna open slowly in order to not cause a second global wave. But they will start opening, yeah. Yes. They can't not start opening, especially countries which rely heavily on tourism. It's because they rely heavily on tourism, they need to be able to survive. They don't have any money to support themselves if they don't have people coming over. So they need to open for external like i don't know if the, to call these uh reasons internal economic or external economic because it's kind of other internal but but for, people are coming from other nations to spend money in your country yeah. it's like it's weird uh so speaking yeah, of that's... border crossings um this morning i went to gibraltar and the spanish are doing this weird thing um, so they say, you need a residen residencia, which is like a little green card saying you're a resident of the nation. And, well, since I, I'm not 18, I can't get one. And I was with my mom. So, so they said, I can get in, but I can't get out. So, and even if you have a family book, like the family book in Spain is sort of proof of like, you're their son, for example, and you live with them your parents or your guardians or whatever. And even if you've got oh, <coughs> even if you've got that, they they won't let you out. And and what made it even more confusing was that in the border crossing there are two things there are Guardia Civil and the Policia Nacional. And the Guardia Civil they just check for drugs and cigarettes and stuff and they 
fuck off, basically. But when the national police, they're the one that does the border crossing. Huh. So the guard just says, yeah, it's all fine. And the police say, no, it's not fine. So they make it really difficult for people, like, even if you're just leisure, you know, go go to Gibraltar for, like, a restaurant or then you know, go shopping or something. They make it really difficult. Um, and to that I say, well, either make it simple, yeah, don't overcomplicate things and have two different, like, police forces saying different things, or just don't don't open it, you know, because they're making it really difficult for people. And I saw a lot of people just turning away from the border crossing, just walking back. And, yeah, but they have opened to, like, workers and stuff, so people who live uh, in the town next to Gibraltar, they can go into Gibraltar and vice versa. Um, on the 1st of July, I believe, uh, they're going to fully open borders um, with France and Portugal, so... All right, pretty cool. So, the third topic is Ryan. Oh, yes. Now, uh, I'm going to carry on with Britain um, for for a different reason, as... Igor mentioned, and as we know, sort of the Black Lives Matter things swept the world, and everyone's protesting about racism and stuff like that. And a couple people, well, a bit of an under, like an understatement, have taken it on another level or crossed the line. Um, and uh, as you mentioned, there have been several cases or reports or whatever of vandalism throughout the UK, where people, will, you know, vandalize sculptures and stuff. And most of them are historic sculptures, for uh, for example, like Winston Churchill, or in Belgium, Leopold II. Um, and in Winston Churchill, so I'll focus on his first. Under his statue, I can't remember where it was, they sprayed, was racist. It's been it's been quite a few uh, Winston Churchill yes. statues that have been, yeah, well, it's not just one, it's been multiple. Well, on the one in BBC, the one they showed, um, they sprayed was racist under Churchill's engraving. So, you know, Churchill engraved and then was racist spray spray painted under. And they had to box it off, you know, to protect it. And I'll be straightforward. I think it's completely unacceptable. You know, we know Churchill was an instrumental piece to, you know, the Allies and, you know, helping people's morale. And now you're just spray painting someone who has literally saved your country or was a key piece to saving your country in the darkest hour. And I think that's just being stupid. And now, people argue that he was a racist. And in fact, you know, he actually was a bit. Uh, you know, they say he's a white supremacist, wants black people dead, etc., etc. And that is true to an extent. I mean, the main argument about Winston Churchill being racist is to do with the Bengal famine. That's yeah. pretty much where the main argument is about it. And then there's been some other quotes that I've seen where they talk about his time in Afghanistan, a few other things. Um, one, he wasn't... So the issue of, if you hear talking about Afghanistan, um, there's a quote that's often really taken out of context. Uh, I remember there was a, a few years back, there was a rant by an Irish guy on Twitter that blew up about how Churchill was racist, and most of it was out-of-context quotes, with the one argument being the Bengal famine. Um, the Bengal famine was, it was a famine caused because the British brought, when the Japanese were invading India, they brought supplies back from the front, and they took, and they took, and everybody pretty much in between the British and the Japanese starved to death. Because all the supplies were behind the British and the Japanese were advancing. So it it led to a massive famine, which if you look at it, um, there was arguments that the British 
Uh, and then there's been arguments that, well, Churchill purposely starved them, which is true to an extent. The British did, uh, the British did in the end, starve them. The issue was that it was, it's the argument of, well, was that, it was in, it was in favor of the war effort. And if you look, most of it was because if it's the, in any war zone, what's going to happen is the military is going to take more supplies. The, the British and French did the same things in, in Europe, all that kind of thing. So it's arguing that Churchill overall was a massive racist just because, obviously, okay, I'm not condoning this famine. This famine was an awful, it was a war crime, no question there. But it also was, the, it also was, you have to, in any historical context, you have to balance the, the good and the bad, and just saying Churchill racist bad is, no, there's, every person in history is a gray. Of course, when it comes to historical context, any statue of a person essentially is inevitably going to be torn down yeah. because eventually something will happen where that person is deemed to be racist or whatever the historical context, whatever the historic, whatever the social norms become, however long in the future, they will eventually disagree with you. Like, example, if someone builds a statue of me, in a hundred years' time, I will have had an opinion that doesn't fit with that world yeah. and my statue would be torn down. It's Statue tearing down really is an inevitability. Yeah. Um, and obviously, I think though, well, some figures in history you know that shouldn't be torn down. For example, Churchill. You know, he was the savior. It was a bit of an overstatement, but the savior of Britain. Um, but going back to the racism and how he was a racist, uh, there's a Wikipedia article on it. You can go read it. It's like Winston. There's a whole article on him and his political views. Um, and says uh, he believed, you know, white people and Jews were at the top of the social hierarchy and blacks at the bottom. And if, if you didn't know, he was a nationalist. Um, but the issue is, a lot of people don't realize he was born in the 19th century to an upper-class family. And colonialism was the trend back in the day, you know. And using the fact that he was an imperialist is sort of an empty accusation. That carries no weight. Well, everybody, sort of, everybody was an imperialist. It was exactly, the social norm. Exactly. Is the trend. And keep in mind, uh, you could say you could say the same thing about any Brits during the early 20th century, like you just said. A lot of the time, people pick and choose what their context has been, and they look at, like in the U.S. Yeah, I can I can make a perfect example: FDR and or FDR, easy one. You, you go, well, FDR took them through the war, and it's like, well, he, he didn't do anything like the Bengal famine. And it's like, well, no, but he also continued the whole American empire thing and pretty much just took more land for the United States, not to mention anything to do with Chinese people in the United States or Japanese people who were massively interned in camps and nobody's tearing down FDR statues. And... Um I think they have to keep in mind, Britain literally fought the most deadly war in history up to that point, the First World War, and had expanded their empire to a peak. That wasn't under Churchill, but Churchill was actually part. He was a general uh, leader of one of the um, fronts in World War One, And to be brutally honest, you have to be quite obtuse to see that as a reason to take down a statue of a historical and great man. I think it's a shame that these people are just too afraid, you know, to be proud of their predecessor, their ancestors that helped bring England, Britain, whatever you want to call it, to that place. You know, they were 
like a step, you know? Sort of, we have like a stairway. I think it's, it stems a bit from the fact that we know the Nazis are racist and supposedly uh, the Allies and stuff fought against the imperialist and racist Nazis, which is kind of not true. We only discovered that the Holocaust after the end of the war. Um, I mean, while people advancing are... into territory, but then, but then there, we come up with like uh, we come up with the data and the fact the facts to prove that other historical figures were racist, and then there's like this argument of oh, they were all racist and they are all bad. Yeah. And then people start comparing everyone to the Nazis. Which yeah, is horrible. As it always goes. Nazis were absolutely... Everyone's a Nazi. They were, the Nazis, I'm going to say this straight. Um, even me as a sort of like a bit of a conservative and more of an authoritarian. The Nazis were absolutely horrible people. and they Most of them, they deserve to die. You know, you could say, yes, they were in dire need, you know. But Hitler and his little group of SS soldiers, they were horrible people, you know. They didn't care. They wanted... They, build Germany for their for themselves and decided to go to war with everyone for their own benefit, not the Germans. And they were the villains of history in that point. And um, I'll continue this uh, to less of, less of an extreme um, issue recently, um, but it was actually overturned. And that was the censoring and ban of a certain episode of Faulty Towers, which was like a 70s hit comedy show. And the episode yeah, that they that. censored or banned or whatever was called The Germans. And to sum it up briefly, yeah. it, was, it was about some German guests. You know, the owner the owner of the hotel had a mental breakdown and did some uh, German marching, you know, hailed Hitler and screamed some German words. Um, it also made fun of Indians by calling them, uh, excuse me here, quote, niggers and walks. And I've watched the episode and honestly, I think it's quite funny. And so I think, why? You know, why ban a piece of cultural history? You know, it was well-loved by these people, you know, the people of England. And it's like digging into someone's Twitter history and firing them from, like, a job or whatever because they said faggots back in 2008, you know. it's It was made in a different time with different yeah, every, standards. Every, everything is a product of its own time. Anything we exactly. do today is a product at of our time point, and will be judged in 30 years. Yeah, at some point, things we say today that are super progressive and super amazing and good for society will be will be looked at as conservative and... Reactionary. Bit, uh, and reactionary and non-PC in like 50 yeah. years. Yeah. I think it's completely it's, unnecessary. You know, instead of banning an episode which chopped like TV charts and was loved throughout England for 45 years ago, so nearly half a century, why don't we, you know, not see these potentially offensive words and slurs and whatever now? You know, we adjust our comedy and our standards, but there's no need to ban what's happened from the past. You know, it's happened and people yeah, love it. As, as, much as, as much as people may want to you cannot erase history it's although i think you know there is some cases where the history argument is frankly uh not true namely uh anything to do with the confederate heritage in the southern united states but this is a tv show i mean yeah i know but in most contexts, when it comes to history, that when it comes to a lot of media or people it's like well they were a product of their own time 
we don't have to claim them as ours. We don't have to say we respect this. We but we we just have to go. Well, we just have to deal yeah. with it. We can't just, we can't it erase happened. it. Exactly, it happened. We can't erase it. But we also not erasing it isn't inherently condoning it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And, um, I'll continue this um, to. Um the issue of I'll, I'll just add yes. for a bit. I know, like, the Soviet Union, especially uh, under Stalin and a bit under Lenin, was a very bad place. Like, everyone was, <laughs> I'll say everyone was equally oppressed. <laughs> and um, besides the Ukrainians, um, we don't talk about that. The Holodomor, uh, very bad awful genocide i do, but i still don't think statues of lenin should be torn down like we, you can't really erase history uh for example in russia they still stand and in some uh like some post-soviet countries they still stand but in others they've been fully removed uh, erased and and this uh, dis uh, display of any Soviet symbolism is fully banned. Yeah. So that's another thing. This. Like even in America, the Confederate flag isn't banned. I don't think, at least. It no, is. it's, it's not, not banned. Right? It's, it's not. It's not. No. And, it, and other controversial places like Israel, the Israeli flag isn't necessarily banned in Iran, I think, and in Palestine. So yeah. yeah. And I'll continue to like vandalism of statues. And Belgium and Belgians have been taking down statues of Leopold II, the king of the Belgians, and was responsible for causing horrible crimes against humanity. He, the term crimes against humanity was coined because of him. Um, now, I'll make this abundantly clear before I step into this minefield. I don't condone starting up a brutal slave trade where you smolder people's hands with hot iron rods and amputate them. What I, was, what I will say is that the way these stories are being reported by the news is inappropriate. And for example, even though I use the BBC as a source, in their title, they, they used Belgium, quote-unquote, wakes up to its bloody colonial past. And I say, what? You know, it's, it's there, you know, it's happened. Generally, you know, you would like to keep sort of that piece of dark history away from Belgium. Bringing it up as an issue now doesn't help, you know? Like, you can't undo what's happened, you know? And what's funny is that a lot of these vandalizers, if that's a word, of, of his statues, didn't even know who he was before they vandalized it. So they only discover now, and they just vandalize it. So it's just like they're digging something up. And... uh. Obviously, other colonial powers during his time forced him to stop doing this horrible stuff um, during the early oh, 1900s, yeah. and he they, did stop. They, they took his call. They took his personal property from him because he was causing genocide in it. Um, and which I mean, no, because it, it wasn't even a Belgian colony. It was just his personal, his personal fiefdom. Um, and he, uh, yeah, he caused a genocide. Yeah. Yeah, and. I think, as I said before, bringing it up as like an issue doesn't help. And but quoting the BBC article I just mentioned, uh, quote in the DRC, Democratic Republic of the Congo itself, no one has noticed. No one really has noticed the Belgian protests. Cells says Jules Bulamba, a 
a lawyer in the southern eastern city of Lubumbashi. And one thing that I do condemn the Belgians for doing, though, is not educating their people about their colonial past. Because, you know, they should... They should know about what's happened. They no, acknowledge no it. country is no country is very. There's only one, really one country in the world that's actually good at teaching their citizens their own dark, like Germany, dark past. I could say Canada would be up there in one of the countries that's really, really, really terrible at it because we don't teach it at all, and most Canadians don't find out about some of our crimes against humanity through school. Um, uh, the only country that's actually good Germany. at it would be Germany. Yes. Yeah, I was yeah, just yeah. about to say, and I think it's you don't you don't teach it, you know, to be necessarily proud of it, but you should it should be taught to acknowledge it, you know, to understand what the happened in the past, and do like what the Germans do. They teach the history of Nazism and the Holocaust, so they can at least acknowledge what happened. Um, but luckily, we don't actually need to worry about this issue because next year, uh, the Ministry of Education, or whatever it is, they said it will be a mandatory part of the Belgian curriculum for next year. So, um, there you go. sum up, don't ban old TV shows, don't vandalize old sculptures, and educate your people about your hi- nation's history. That's all I got to say. Yeah, Canada. Canada has. Yeah, Canada has yet to mandate. Canada has yet to mandate. Well, y- y- you don't really learn about like residential schools, all that kind of stuff in Canada, which was mm. our sort of crimes against humanity, which they didn't shut down until the 1980s. Um. Damn. Yeah. I'd say, I'd say in Belgium, uh, because uh, Leopold II was, uh, just saying it lightly, pretty bad, yeah. uh, I think the statues shouldn't be taken down in protests, but I think the government should act and civilly take them down at some point. Yeah, and a lot of these people... Yeah. Instead, of, instead of people taking them down randomly and causing Havoc. damage to other things like roads... The government should, yeah, should just come and take they them should, down. The statues should, as as much as the statues should be used to be able to instead because because the, the issue is in a statue is inherently really one of two things. It's either glorification of the person involved, or it's used for, I guess, learning purposes. If you know what I mean, like the, like this statue was put up, and uh, in a bit of the south, there's a lot of statues where either they've taken them down. Or they've put up plaques and that kind of thing that says this statue was put up and was inherently racist when it was put up, and here's why. Yeah. I think mm. as as much as they're a part of our history, but they also can be used as a learning opportunity yeah. because a lot of people don't don't know about this kind so of maybe, thing. And then when in the heat of these protests, people just go, "Well, we have to tear it down." It isn't. It's never used as a learning opportunity. It just goes from glorification to on the ground in pieces. Yeah, and so as I said. Most of these, a lot of these vandalizers, they didn't even know who the, they didn't even know what the, who the statue represented. Yep. So I think, maybe well, instead that's, of that's a failure of the uh, Belgian education system, down, like you said, use it as an opportunity to learn and put a plaque and tell, tell a piece of history. Or um, a lot of people have said, don't even put them in museums. I think, yes, put them in museums. You know, if you're not going to have them in public, at least have them in a museum. So you know, because a museum generally is to learn about history and. That's sort of. Yeah, uh, that's what they're doing. That's what they're doing with the statue that was thrown in the river in Bristol. They're moving it to a museum. Mm. 
Um, I think that the, is a smart yeah, That was idea. like the first one that made a lot of news. The one that was... Uh, it was the man who was involved in... Sl- I forget his name, but he was involved in slave trading from Bristol, and his statue was thrown in a river, and they're gonna fish it out and put it in a museum. Yeah, I heard about that. Mm. Yeah. Alright. Sure, yeah. Would that be pretty much the end of this topic? The end? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. That's, I think that's the end of all the topics, unless oh, we okay. talk about something else. No, I hit what I wanted to talk about. <laughs> so, this is uh, it for today, for Political Compass Podcast uh, Week 3, and good night.